live in uh, a land of plenty. We live in an age of uh, competitive gluttony. This has become actually a worldwide phenomenon in our world today. Uh, probably the most famous, famous is uh, Nathan's hot dog eating contest in Coney Island. Takes, takes place uh, July 4th every year and people compete to see who can eat the most hot dogs in, in uh, 10 minutes. Uh, the current record is 72 hot dogs with buns. That, that can't be good for you, right? But that, that's just one of the competitions. In, uh, in Russia, as I understand, in Moscow, every year they hold a caviar eating competition. How much caviar? So the, the, the record is right now, they, someone is able to eat a pound of caviar in 90 seconds. I don't even know what that looks like. Uh, in Thailand, they hold a crocodile egg eating competition. How quickly can you eat 10 crocodile eggs? And uh, uh, I, I haven't seen this. Maybe some of you have. They've, they've got a televised eating competition called the Glutton Bowl, where they actually have different rounds where they're competing, and it's kind of a, uh, a round-robin competition to see who can get to the top. In, in one of the rounds, a man devoured eight pounds of mayonnaise in 12 minutes. So like just all, all over... Probably the most, uh, well, the, for me, the most uh, hard, hard to take, hard to swallow, hard to even hear about is uh, in Florida, they have a live cockroach eating contest. Large, ugly cockroaches, and they, they stuff them down whole, whole. And if you've followed the news at all, one of, one of the winners of the competition actually he, he won, he was awarded his prize, and he made it to the parking lot and began to choke, and he, he passed away. It was just, but this is our age. So I'm, I'm, I'm having you look at a passage today where we're talking about how, how God feel, fe- feeds and how Jesus responds to, to our hunger, and I'm saying, hey, we're in a world where uh, hunger means different things than it, than it did for many, uh, for many, many people. Uh, we're in an age of, uh, in one sense, we're fuller than we've ever been. But in another sense, the hunger remains. It's just taken on different forms. Uh, today, we hunger for, for meaning, for satisfaction. We hunger for, for hope and for joy, for peace. Uh, many of us hunger for rest. Uh, just different things that we hunger for. Uh, it may not be a, uh, a loaf of bread. Uh, you may be um, gluten intolerant, and the idea of a loaf of bread is just like that's not that's not your your need. But the needs haven't gone away, and as we'll see in our our passage today, uh, there that longing to be filled uh, still remains, and Jesus is the Savior who fills uh, our emptiness. Uh, so we're going to see three things today in our today's passage. First, we focus on Jesus, and, and it is a revelation of who he is, of how he does uh, meet the longings of the human heart in a way that no one ever has and no one ever could do. But then we're going to see that Jesus draws near to some and actually withdraws from others. And it, it's unusual for us to even talk about that kind of language in church with the Bible, but but that, that's, that's what we, we're confronted with in this passage. He actually draws near to some people, and he pulls away from other people. And we ought to know 
why that is and, and what, what, we should, uh, what we should do about it and how we should respond. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 6. And uh, we're going to be beginning uh, this series where we're, we're looking at John 6 and 7 uh, in the coming weeks in this, uh, this series of the Savior who fills our emptiness. I'm going to read from John 6 verses 1 to 15. John 6, verses 1 to 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Galilee, uh, other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, and nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now as we look at this passage, we're, we need to stop and just uh, back up for a second and say, this account, the feeding of the 5,000, gets repeated in all four Gospels. It was important enough that all of the Gospel writers said, this has to be in there. People need to know this. People need to uh, come to terms with it. Our modern minds would temp temp be tempted to say, oh, this was some legend. It's just kind of a myth. Like, he didn't actually feed 5,000 men and, and and the, 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 the men are counted as 5,000, but there were also women and children there. So we're talking about a crowd of somewhere in the order of some 15,000 people, perhaps. But because there were so many people and it was written so early, we need to come to terms with this is an historical uh, testimony that we have, to, we have to deal with. Today, if I were to tell you, oh, 2,000 years ago, such an such a thing happened, I could kind of play fast with the details and, and nobody would ever really know. But this, these uh, accounts in the Gospels were written within 30 years of the actual events taking place. And with 15,000 people in an area of the countryside where, where not a lot of amazing, incredible things happened like this, this would have made either a big splash and everyone would know about it, or no one would know about it. You wouldn't just pass off a story like this and, and, and make it up and have, not have everybody throw up their hands and say, 
like I was kind of living in that area right at that time. I didn't hear anything about that. I mean, if, if something that big had happened, trust me, word would spread. We would have heard that kind of thing taking place. And, and so we need to deal with this as, uh, as difficult as it is for our modern ears. We need to take it seriously. We need to understand that, that this was uh, a real historical event. And through this historical event, Jesus was trying to show once and for all that he was the one who fills the hunger of the human heart, and he does so richly and in abundance. We try to fill ourselves today with things that don't satisfy, some things that make us choke, other things that are just not helpful for us, that are dangerous for us. But Jesus fills that hunger that we have, and he does so with abundance. Now, as the scene opens, we're told in verse 2 that a large crowd has been following Jesus. He goes up and he sits down with his disciples. And what we need to recognize is that at this point, Jesus is trying to get away. He needs some rest, and he realizes that his disciples need some rest as well. Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 31, one of the other gospel accounts fills in some of the details for us. It shows that he was concerned that the disciples get some rest, and he urges them, and it says, to come away and rest for a while. You see Jesus giving, recognizing where the disciples were at, what they needed, and providing for their rest. And he gives the reason in, in that same chapter in Mark's gospel. It says, for many were coming and going that they had no leisure even to eat. The, the disciples, we kind of just get these little bits and pieces of, of their lives we see the, the stories and the healings. What we don't recognize is that it was a grueling pace for, for them at, at, at many times throughout this ministry. People would hear about what Jesus would, was doing, and they were coming from all corners, and they didn't get a, uh, an opportunity to stop and to rest. And so Jesus is here providing for that. He takes them away, gets them away from the crowd, goes up on a mountain where he hopes that nobody will, will be. He sits down with them, and the hope is that they will rest. And, and many of you have jobs like this. Many of you know uh, the idea of not getting, having enough break even to rest. You're used to eating lunch at your computer. You're, you've got just constant, uh, constant demands. Or, or maybe it's children that have you... Uh, uh, not getting, not getting that break, just that, that idea of constant attention, constant demand. And even just as we're starting in, into this passage, we see Jesus providing the rest when people are putting just constant demands on, on his followers. Before long, the serenity of the moment passes, though, and the crowd is caught up with him. Jesus takes the disciples away, tries to get them to a remote location, and the crowd won't let up. They're chasing after him. The people have found him. In verse 5, you've got a large crowd coming toward him, and it says he lifted up his eyes. And if you could just picture yourself in that situation and what you would do, like if it had said, if, if it had been me there with the disciples and I've just been running away from the crowd and I see them coming toward me, it might have said, and Paul rolled his eyes when he saw the crowd, right? 
uh, trying, just, I, I can't believe it. They found us here. Like, can't we get a little break, a little bit of rest? Uh, maybe if it was you and you saw the crowd coming, it might have said, and you uh, closed your eyes and pretended not to see them. You know, we, we can avoid the potential disruptions that come in our lives. Most people would cry out in exasperation, but uh, Mark's gospel, chapter 6, verse 34, adds this. He saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees them and he chooses to look. He chooses to care. He chooses to have a compassion that, humanly speaking, we would say, boy, surely you've done enough for today. Surely you can just pass on this one. Surely they would understand if you told them to get lost because you've all been putting in far too much. And it says Jesus couldn't do that. He had compassion on them. And Jesus doesn't just see the needs of the crowd. He sees our needs as well. It's given for us here in Scripture to remind us that when Jesus looks into us and he sees us coming with another need, another problem, another challenge, he chooses not to look away. He chooses to engage, to look, to care, and to do so with patience and with compassion. I love the fact that Jesus' first instinct is to feed those who are hungry. In verse 5, he says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Again, we would have complained about the interruption. We would have put up our hands and said, well, there's nothing that can be done. We would have avoided the interaction. But the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is compassion. How will we feed them? How will we respond? There's a need here. How do we engage? And his heart for this world hasn't changed. He still sees he still feels. He still has compassion. His, his first instinct is still to reach out and meet the needs that we bring, meet the needs that we have. He doesn't give us all of the things that we want, all the things even that we ask for because we live in an age where people ask for cockroaches. But he does respond to the things that we most earnestly need. He's a God of great compassion. But still, Jesus is funny. He seldom chooses the most direct method. And we see that in the passage here. He could have been far more direct. He could have taken an easier path, even to just to meet the needs. But he takes a detour. Because Jesus often works through those who will offer him what they have. Be easier for him to do it himself. Be quicker for him not to bother with disciples or us as his followers, but Jesus consistently works through those who offer him what they have. Notice he asks Philip, where, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? See that in verse 5? And verse 6 gives a commentary. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. See, Jesus asks for an opinion but it's an opinion that he doesn't need. He asks for an opinion that he doesn't need because he wants to include us. He wants to engage us in the process because he's a God who works through people who would offer him what they have. Philip, as it, as it turns out, has some decent accounting, accounting skills. 
He's from Bethsaida. He, he looks at the crowd, kind of takes some, takes some time to, to count the numbers, works that he would have made a great usher, but we'd love to have him at our business meetings when we're trying to count up the people quickly. Like, he could size up the group. He, he could do some little rough math in his head and say, okay, if we got a little bit for them. And, and he, he works it all out, and he said, Mm, about 200 denarii, and that, that would be like the bare minimum. Everyone would just get kind of like a mouthful, just a tiny little bit. Um, but like that's eight months' wages. We, we, we don't have that, that amount, right? And he, he sizes that all up for Jesus. Now, again, this was information. It was an opinion that Jesus really didn't need, but he includes Philip this way. And, and Philip sometimes gets a bad rap. Sometimes people say, you know, Philip, he, he just, all he could do was think, uh, humanly speaking, with, with, he's just all numbers. He's just all about the calculation. I, I, don't really, I don't really think we need to come down so hard on Philip here. Jesus asked a question, Philip answered it. And it seems to me that he included Philip here, not because he was really looking for the information, not because he really needed it himself, but it was his way of commuting, communicating to Philip and all of the other disciples this situation is humanly impossible. Like, eight months' wages, we, they, they all know we don't carry around that kind of cash. There's no way we're going to come up with that much bread. And even if we did, that would just be kind of like a mouthful for this crowd. The, the, the point was to communicate to everyone involved, this is completely impossible humanly. And so he, he uses Philip and he engages in, 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 with him. Now, if you didn't think much of Philip's opinion, then you have to see here that Andrew's suggestion is completely ridiculous, right? In verse 9, Andrew brings a boy to Jesus and says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, if you're Jesus and you've got this crowd of 15,000 people and Andrew comes up with a suggestion saying, hey, we've got this boy, we could take his lunch then we would have five loaves and two bread. What could we do with that? Like, if you're Jesus, are you thinking, wow, why didn't I think of that? What a great suggestion. Like, this Andrew, he's got it all figured out. What, if, what an amazing, I'm glad he's on the team. Like, are you thinking, boy, this Andrew, he's, he's a real contributor. I, I've I got to go to him more quickly next time. Like, it, it, was, it was a ridiculous suggestion. But Jesus at this point doesn't slap him on the back of the neck and say, like, what were you thinking more? Like these five loaves of bread and two, there's nothing, like that's just totally ridiculous. He could have, if, if Jesus could feed 15,000 people with five loaves and two, two fish, do you think that he could feed them without five loaves and two fish? Pro- stands to reason, right? He doesn't need the fish. He doesn't need this suggestion. But Jesus graciously uses the suggestion. Jesus graciously says, Andrew, well done. Good, we can work with that. Bring, bring, bring the kid over here. Yeah, let's talk with, bring over this lunch. We can use that. And Andrew doesn't go away rebuked, uh, demoralized, or feeling st- as stupid as he might might be, should be made to, to, to feel at this point, he becomes a part of God's plan. 
Jesus uses him because that's what Jesus does. Jesus loves to work through people who would offer him what they have. Then there's the boy of verse 9. Barley bread, maybe some of you are kind of into barley. Maybe you're thinking, hey, this is like ancient grains. This is, this is like, this is a good stuff, you know. In the first century, you wouldn't have thought that. Barley was kind of the poor person's bread. If you had any kind of means, you would go for wheat-based uh, bread. But this was, this was barley. This was the cheaper stuff that you could pick up at kind of discount rates in the market. And the, the fish here was probably dried or preserved, probably closer to sardines than a rack of salmon. This was not like a big, luxurious uh, thing that he'd brought along. Just, just a little, uh, a, a, a young, young person with uh, a, a little bit of lunch to spare. And again, Jesus doesn't need the child's food. He doesn't, he doesn't need it for the miracle. He doesn't need it for anything, but he chooses to use it. This is, this is how God acts. This is how God works. This is the plan of Jesus Christ. He could have already fed the people by now if he wasn't worrying about entertaining people's suggestions and, okay, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, we could work with some fish and some bread. Yeah, I guess I could incorporate that into the plan. He didn't need any of it. But Jesus is the one who works through those who would offer him what they have. Afterwards, I don't think Philip looked back on this event and said, boy, my calculations really saved the day. Afterwards, when, when Philip would look back on it, he wouldn't, he wouldn't credit his accounting skills with this great miracle, but he would say, I offered Jesus what I had, and for some reason he used it. I was a part of it. When Andrew looked back, he wouldn't say, boy, when I, when I made that suggestion about the five loaves and two fish, like I was on fire there. Like I was really killing it. That was... That was really a brilliant suggestion. He wasn't thinking that at all. He was saying, I, got, I, I offered Jesus what I had, and he used it. I was a part of his plan. The little boy, when he went home, he didn't go home marveling at what great fish that he had, what great barley that, that he had offered up to Jesus. It wasn't all about him. But he would look back, and he would say, I was a part of it. I gave J- Jesus just a little bit, and what Jesus did was absolutely incredible. My part was just like this tiny, tiny little thing, but I did what I could, and Jesus, for some crazy reason, he chose to work through me. He chose to work through my lunch like that. How, how ridiculous is that? How amazing is that? And that was the point of Jesus including them. That boy went home with joy that night. He would have told all the kids at school, all the people in the neighborhood about his lunch and how Jesus used it to feed all those thousands of people. And we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. Jesus gives us opportunities to be a part of what he's doing. And the point is, that he works through those who offer him what they have. And and so the question is, are you doing that? 
Can you point to what you have offered to Jesus and what you continue to offer up to Jesus Christ? We have needs in almost every area of our ministry as a church. We do. We have, like, just, just name a ministry leader and they will tell you about holes that they have in, in their ministry that we are working to, to try and fill and for people to double up and do extra duty because we, we, have, we have holes in our, in our ministries. We have, uh, we have financial needs as a congregation that hinder us as a ministry. That, that's not new information. That's just, that, that's just a reality of, of where we are at as a church. We have needs as a congregation that, and this isn't unique to us. This would be common to, uh, you walk down the street, and it doesn't matter which direction you, you go, I, I'm sure you will, you will find uh, similar situations where uh, holes and needs where, where churches look to God, ask for, uh, ask for God's mercy, and there are, still, there are still needs. And so the question is, are you offering Jesus what you have? He is still the God who longs to work through those who would offer him what they have. And I I think what a passage like this does, and I think what Jesus did intentionally, and he's going to do something that's so amazing, he knew that thousands of years later, people would still be talking about it. And so when he does that amazing miracle, he deliberately works through some people that people would also remember. And the passage confronts our temptation to say, I don't have that much. Like, there's really not much that I have to offer. Or it confronts the temptation that we might have to say, I'm not really good at stuff. Like, if Jesus came to me and asked for my input, I wouldn't really have, like, I'm just not a kind of a top shelf, um, got a lot to offer kind of person. Like, that's just not who I am. And it seems to me that the point that Jesus is making here is that he works with unnecessary unnecessary opinions, dumb suggestions, and like little children's cheap lunches. Like if God works through that, surely he's like, I don't know what you've got, but whatever it is, surely it it kind of falls somewhere, uh, uh, at at least in the ballpark of, of, of what these guys are offering, right? Jesus works through those who offer him what they have. Understand there's an African proverb that says, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. Mosquitoes are very small. They don't have a lot to offer. But you don't forget them. They make a contribution that is memorable, right? So Jesus works through those who offer him what they have. And the final lesson of, the, lesson of this passage is that although Jesus works through those who offer him what they have, he withdraws from those who demand what he has. He works through those who offer him what they have, but he withdraws from those who demand what he has. You don't expect to hear that from the Bible, do you? And especially after we've seen his compassion on the crowds, Jesus is all in. He is full of compassion. He is constantly giving himself during his earthly ministry so that we would forever remember that he is constantly giving himself 
in his heavenly ministry. So we don't expect to hear him say that. Jesus' miracles were spectacular. His feeding of the 5,000, absolutely incredible. But the miracles were intended to teach something. They were intended to communicate something about who he was, who, how he acts. He wanted people to see who, that he was the Son of God. He wanted people to trust him as their Savior. He wanted them to recognize him as the promised king. But many people just saw the bread and the fish. Many people just saw the, the hunger that they had, and now they were kind of more full. They didn't see Jesus for who he was. They didn't get the point of the miracle. Some people see Jesus as a magician. Look at verse 2, for instance. It says, A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Anyone who has traveled and chased Jesus across the, uh, uh, across the countryside and up on a mountain... The, the implication is they're probably pretty healthy. But it, they weren't bringing their, their needs to him so much as they wanted to see a little, bit of a, a, a little bit of a sideshow. They wanted to see another miracle. When Jesus healed people, they followed, it, followed him to see him heal more people. When he fed people, they followed him to see if, he, if they could get more food. They see Jesus as some kind of divine vending machine. He's like a, a Jewish genie of some kind. Like they, they just, they, they see him for what they can get from him in kind of this spectacle kind of way. And Jesus will have no part of it. He withdraws from those who demand what he has. Some people see, see Jesus as less than he is. Look at verse 14, for instance. The people see Jesus' miracle and they conclude, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, that was a good conclusion to make as far as things go. It's a, they're referring to a, a prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses had predicted another prophet will come like him, and, and the people were to listen to him. Jesus was that prophet, but he was so much more than that prophet, and the people didn't see it. They didn't get it. They didn't see him as their Savior, their Lord. They didn't see him as their God, their, their hope. They just saw him as something less than he was. Many people try to relate to Jesus in the same way today. And again, he withdraws. He doesn't play those kinds of games. Most troubling, some people see Jesus as a savior they can control. In verse 15, look what it says. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountainside by himself. They thought, this free meal was so good, if we make him king, we will have like endless buffet. It'll be like a daily, like we won't have to work anymore. It'll be incredible. They were thinking, if Moses could feed people like food, and they said like, what is it? It's manna. What is it? Like if, Jesus, if Moses could provide that food and he delivered Israel from Egypt, surely Jesus can deliver us from Roman tyranny and oppression. They wanted to dial a savior. They wanted a, a free bread delivery service. 
They wanted to turn Jesus into something that he will never turn into. He doesn't play those games. In fact, he sees it coming. In verse 15, it says he perceived what they were about to do. He sees the intentions of our hearts, and it matters to him. Jesus knows what's in our heart. He sees us when we look to him, and he can see the motivation. He can see the intention, and he will, he will forego food and rest and everything to, to provide for the needs of, of, uh, of a crowd. He has compassion. But when we bring to him our demands with a sense that we can kind of control him and make him our, uh, put him on a leash somehow and, and make him our servant, Jesus doesn't play those games. He withdraws. He steps away. If you were to think about it, where would you find people like this today? Like, where would you find people who chase after Jesus and demand of him uh, with, don't see him for who he is, treat him a little bit like a magician, and demand from him what he has? Where would you find people like that today? They'd have to be in church, right? Like, they wouldn't be out in the world. They would, they, people... And the world would say, no, I, like if, if I don't want anything to do with Jesus, if, I, I wouldn't be going to church. It, it, they, they would be in church. They, they would be people like us. And so as we look at this crowd, we're looking at them and we're looking at our own heart and how we relate to Jesus Christ, how we see him or how we don't see him, how we approach him, how we view him. Jesus is the Savior who fills our emptiness. He's the one who fills the longings of the human heart. And he does so extravagantly. He does so in abundance. He can fill us like nothing else in the world. Have you come to Jesus and do you come to Jesus asking him to fill you? Asking him to provide what this world cannot provide. Jesus is glorified in that question. Jesus is glorified when we say, Jesus, everyone in my workplace thinks that pouring themselves into, the, into their career is what's going to fill them. I reject that. I think it's you. Jesus is glorified when we say that. Jesus is glorified when we say, you know what, everyone around me is thinking that if, if I just, if I get a, this, the right guy or if I just get the right girl... That, that's what's going to fill my life. I reject that. I think it's you. I think Jesus Christ is the one who fills me. And so I ask you, Jesus, fill my life the way only you can fill it. There are a hundred different ways that our world tries to fill the emptiness, tries to fill the void. And Jesus is glorified when we come to him and say, it's you. I'm I put all my eggs in the Jesus basket. I believe you are the one who fills me. That glorifies Jesus Christ because it recognizes who he is. But Jesus doesn't like to work alone. He likes to work through people who will offer up what they have. We don't have much. And we don't even have anything that Jesus really needs. But he loves to, he loves to include us. He loves for us to be a part of the plan. He loves to work through our lives when we offer up to him 
what we have. And so I'd urge you to do that. I, I don't know what you got. I don't know how God has put you together. But God works through us. That's the way he works. Finally, I'd encourage all of us to seek our heart. We've already said Jesus is glorified when we come and we say to him, it's not any of these things in the world, it's you that I most need. But it's often in the church where we will change that request into a demand that we can make Jesus into a a little genie. We can turn him into something that he's not. We can try and put him on a leash. And when we do that, Jesus withdraws. Jesus doesn't play those games. And so let's not play those games with Jesus Christ. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we need the bread that only Jesus Christ can provide. And so we ask that you would fill us. We ask that you would help us not to seek in this world what only you can provide in our, in our lives. Help us to stop filling our lives with things that don't satisfy. Help us to come to Jesus Christ for what our heart most longs for. Father, I pray for anyone here with a hunger that they are powerless to fulfill. Answer their prayers and fill them whole. I pray, Father, that as a congregation we join you in the great work that you're pursuing. Give us the courage to offer you what we have. Use us. Work in and through us for your glory. And Father, may we see Jesus for who he is. We praise him as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. We worship him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we offer up this prayer in his glorious name. In Jesus' name, amen.